Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Many of us can make our friends and family laugh, but as comedian Billy Eichner recently noted, it is really hard to make a group of strangers laugh. And that is the task of every working comedian. They get up on stage in a strange city, in a strange venue, with strangers in the audience. Sometimes they hit, sometimes they bomb. But regardless of the result, the successful ones get back up and do it again to face an uncertain reality at each performance. Comedians need to read the room, have incredible control over their bodies and minds, and rely on so many variables to do their work. Even the same material at the same club on two different nights can have a different effect. I'm in perpetual awe and so grateful to comedians for what they give us. Perhaps the greatest gift of comedians is that they give people joy, laughter, and a temporary reprieve from day-to-day struggles and pressures. One of the greatest bringers of joy and laughter I have come across in some time is my guest, Raj Sharma. Raj is a veteran comedian who has been described by SNL legend Daryl Hammond as the freshest voice in comedy. Raj has performed all over the world and in virtually every state in the U.S. As you will hear, he is a fascinating and incredibly fun person. We get into his personal story as well as how he attends to his craft. So listen in as Raj and I geek out to making strangers laugh. Raj Sharma, a hearty welcome to Super Psyched. This is so awesome, man. I just also love the name of your show, Super Psyched. That's kind of, that's what it does. One thing I didn't tell you is that my nickname given to me by my drummer when I was in a Garage band was enthusiasm, yeah. so it's kind of uh, the, uh, bad. <laughs> so that's uh, a great nickname. Yeah, man. Well, I'm so into your work. It's been so much fun geeking out to you, and awesome. I recommend that all listeners geek out to Raj Sharma. I mean, check him out. Check out Destination Unknown. Destination Unknown on Amazon. Amazon with you and Virdas, and it's just absolutely brilliant. But your stand-up is so good. I was telling you offline that your crowd work is some of the best I've ever seen. Your ability to think on the spot. And one of the kind of origin stories that you were conveying to me was growing up as of Indian descent in rural Texas as like the lone person led you to comedy in some way. I was wondering if you could share with the listeners that backstory. I was always a storyteller, kind of even as a kid, like trying to make people laugh was horribly bullied. Mm. And I found that Mm. it takes a special type of person to punch somebody when they're laughing. So if you can still laugh and punch somebody, like you need to be in jail. But I just learned kind of making up jokes. I would do voices. I was the thing I was eight when I learned how to do Reagan. Terribly. (laughs) Eight years old. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I did Cosby pretty well, which now nobody wants to do that. (laughs) And then like cartoon voices, like I could, I could do, I don't, I can't do it anymore, but like Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and all that stuff. And the girls really liked it. And that I was about nine when I figured out 
oh, that's the key to comedy and or just situational stuff is to make women laugh. Because if women laugh, men will automatically laugh because those guys like those girls. And I was making those girls laugh. Now, I knew at a very early age in that small town, you take it out of your head that you're going to date or be girlfriend, boyfriend, even at eight years old or whatever, like when you have your first girlfriend or whatever. Like my first girlfriend was when I was 17 and it was outside of high school. These guys like these girls and I was making them laugh. So they were very keen on messing with me because it would make those girls mad. And those are the girls they liked. So I'm like, oh, and the light bulb went off. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to keep doing everything to make these girls laugh. So if you watch my standup, it's very geared towards making women laugh. (laughs) because Specifically women, more so than... Just go back and watch some of the stuff again. You'll see me talking and I'm like, it's geared to woman's mindset of that relationship or that guy or that situation or whatever. Because I want to make them laugh because then they'll laugh. So that's the whole idea is we're the aphrodisiac. So that's why men take women to comedy clubs. It's because we get them to laugh and then you get to go home and reap the rewards of that. That is Uh, such an important point, by the way. It's almost like extended foreplay of laughter. And I once heard that Sophia Loren was asked, how did this guy end up with you? I mean, I don't remember who her husband was at the time. And she said, he makes me laugh. And this is one of the most beautiful women on the entire planet. Been lucky to date beautiful, beautiful women. And they all said the same thing to people when like, because, you know, you post on social media, whatever. I was like in a relationship with so-and-so and all my friends are like, oh man, what's she seeing you? It's, I would always get something back to that same thing where like, he makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if women like a sense of humor, bring them to a comedy book. We'll do all the work for you. And then you can go home and have fun. <laughs> so, but I also learned my dad would get his haircut at the same little small barbershop in what they called Old Mesquite which apparently I guess we were living in new because it just felt all old to me. And I would steal the Reader's Digest because in the Reader's Digest back, they used to have jokes that people could submit. Yep. And so I would take those and memorize them and I would change the situation to be like my dad or my mom or them both. So it says the two farmers in Kansas, well, I'd make them two farmers in Punjab in India and make the joke. It's the same joke from the Reader's Digest, but I would just incorporate that's called lifting now. I didn't know that uh, <laughs> at nine. But yeah, it was one of those things where I learned very quickly that humor can help with bullying. And it led me to interact with people. Like I always say, like I've been called every name in the book and I've had everything thrown at me. So there's nothing you can say to me on stage. You're not going to win. If you throw something at me on stage, I'll get, because I've heard it all. And I have this Rolodex in my head that when I walk on stage, starts spinning automatically. And if you throw something out, it stops on a dime. And whatever's there, I just say. Then nine times out of 10, it works. So that's where it comes from. It's just this constant, just all these notes that I have. And San Jose Improv is where I became known for crowd work. And it's a little backstory real quick. There was a place called Andy's in Denton, Texas, which is a college town. And I got booked to do it. I had five minutes of material. I just started doing stand-up maybe two months in. And I had a pretty decent five minutes and I went up and man, I mean, I killed. Guys are high-fiving me. Girls are giving me numbers. People are buying me drinks. And the owner's like, I want you back next week. Well, he didn't know that that's the only five minutes I had. (laughs) And I didn't know that's the same audience every week. Oh no. Yeah. 
So the golden boy who's walking out to high fives and getting shots and whatever, I come back and I start the same jokes. Oh no. And I could hear the ice machine go off. Oh my God. That's how bad it was. And this guy started heckling me and I didn't know anything about hecklers. And so I just kept going through my material and the audience was dying laughing at that guy. Oh, he now became the center of attention. I remember people turned to watch that guy and what he had to say to me. And so I just got done with my, and I walked out, I could hear my shoes clacking on the floor as I walked out. And it's one of those things like when you get in a fight when you're a kid or even as an adult, man, man, I should have said this, I should have said, said this. I wrote all that down as I was driving back. I was an hour drive from, and I was writing everything that I should have said to that guy. Cut to 2006, I'm on tour with a touring group called the Gurus of Comedy. And we stopped in San Jose at the Improv and it was sold out. There was a guy in the audience that was heckling every comic and everybody was coming off stage pissed off. And finally, I was asking one of the comics that was walking off. I was like, where is this guy? And they go, he's right there. And so I walked out on stage. I don't think I was on there five seconds and he yells something out. And I just saw that guy from Andy's. That's all I saw. Wow. Everything I wanted to say to that guy, I said to him. And it was about 10 minutes of doing that to where he stood up with two white napkins and waved. Oh my God. Yeah. And it made India West newspaper. I made the front page of India West. And it said, Return of the Golden Boy. It said, you know, they finally arrived. And it says, was a review of all the comedians that were on the show. And then it got to me. And it was this beautiful review. And it starts off with Rush Arma went after a heckler with the speed of a scorpion. And so what happened with this is it can be a blessing and a curse is the subscription for India West about 150, 200,000 people. So I started getting booked a lot. And then I got booked on this small little tour in Arizona and I couldn't figure out for the life of me why everybody was heckling me. Everybody was doing it. And so I'm spending all my time shutting this guy down, shutting this person down, shutting this person down. I remember telling the promoter after that second night, I was like, everybody hates me, bro. <laughs> like, I don't know what I thought. Oh, yeah. My first time here, I don't know why everybody hates me. He goes, oh, did I not tell you? And I said, no. He's like, oh, the deal with the shows are if anybody can shut you down by heckling you, I pay for their drinks. Come on, dude. So the show's sold out based on, can you shut him up? Are you good wow. enough to hit the guru of the gurus of comedy? Comedy, right. I mean, and we're packed like 300, 400 people per club per night. And I'm like, nobody likes me. And then I found that out. I'm like, okay, well, tell me that first. Dude, uh, and here and you show yeah. up on stage, you have prepared material, probably really good material. And yeah. it's hard to stay in flow in the midst of that. Yeah. So I would just turn off that side and go, okay, well, I guess. So I say this and I've said it before. I'll say it. I'm, I'm sure I'll say it a million times in the future. When somebody heckles me, I go, hey, you can watch the show or you can be the show. I get paid either way. So you decide. And I would say that. I'm like, you can watch the show or be the show. And I didn't know what was going on. So I'd hear be the show. And I'm like, all right, man, let's do this. And it was, I'm like, let's toss away everything that we prepared. And I'm like, I'm in Arizona for the first time. And I had all these jokes about being in Arizona and the airport and this and that. And I'm like, let's just throw that out the window. And I would win every time. And the place would go bananas and this, the guys that were heckling me would come over and hug me. And I'm like, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> we were and, just profoundly uncivil with each other. Now you're hugging me. Yeah. They're like, let me buy your drinks. Let's go out <laughs> here. Let's go here. And he had gotten the copy of the newspaper and read the review. 
And I was like, oh, cool. So let me build this tour of Arizona based on this heckling thing. So I didn't know. And it turned out to be one of those things. And then I got known for it. So I wrote this hour called My Generation that we submitted to Netflix. But it was one of those unfortunate situations where we submitted to Netflix. And that day that Netflix received my special was when they came out with their press release that they were no longer taking produced content that they were going to independently or by themselves as a network, Netflix was going to produce their own comedy specials. So Netflix liked it and we got a really nice response from them by email. So I was doing this hour where there was no crowd work and my agents and my manager were getting emails. So we showed up at such and such club. Is he just done talking to the audience now? So is it just... And then I would also get emails before that. Like, so all he does is talk to the crowd. He doesn't do jokes. Yep. I'm like, well, make up your mind. Where's one end? And so I was like, okay. And then they told me we had a little meeting, team meeting. They're like, okay, you got to go back, at least try 50 50 of the jokes and then crowd work. And it just turned back into doing crowd work. And then I would do like the casino shows where I have a little more liberty and a little more time. So I would do the hour and mix in crowd work with it. But I got known for doing it. It's like anything else. If you practice it long enough, I mean, you'll get somewhat good at it, hopefully. So, and it seems as though your eight year old self who was being bullied comes yeah. to the fore at this stage in your life as well, yeah. Yeah. because first of all, you were probably born on the funny side of the bed. Like you probably kind of came out with a good sense of humor that you, yeah, I mean, thank like God. I said, uh, yeah. yeah. Like I was telling you when we were offline, like I was walking by seven months old and I was reading and writing before I was three. And I remember my mom said you were a, you just do dumb things. Like I remember, I apparently I don't remember it. I snuck out of my crib and there was a four-way stop, four-way intersection by my parents' house. And I don't know where I found white gloves, but I found them and I was directing traffic no way. in the four-way stop. And so they figured out my family because there's this Indian kid who's a toddler who's directing traffic and there's only one Indian family in the entire town. <laughs> so they just called you. Yeah. So the, the, they called the police and the police just kind of took me to my house and like my mom was, you know, crying and like, what's going on? And like, he's hilarious. He was directing traffic and apparently was doing it very well. <laughs> so, well, and probably being somewhat charming and funny. Yeah. I was just like, you stop and then you go. Uh huh. And I was like, I see your hands go. And then well, you can't, stop, his, his hands are, yeah, you're, yeah. And then this guy's going. And then I'm like, you, yeah, let's go over here. And like, I'm direct every which way. And my mom said, one of the police officers was like, he was really, really good at it. <laughs> She's like, I, he's like, where did he learn? Yeah. To do that. My mom must have been like TV or something. So I would just kind of try to entertain as much as possible from a very early age. I just really have always enjoyed, and it sounds very cliche, man. And I'm sorry, listeners are having to listen to it, but that's where I get a lot of my joy from is making other people laugh and have a good time and really enjoy themselves for whatever brief moment, because we all have shit in our life that we go through. And if I can make you forget about that for the 45 minutes or an hour that I'm on stage, then I feel like I've done something nice to put out in the universe. And I feel like that joy will come back to me tenfold. I feel like they're doing me the favor of being there and, and laughing and enjoying it because I know that that joy that they're getting will come back to me. That's beautiful. And I want to play on that for a second. I'm remembering in high school, I was having some form of profound anxiety and a buddy of mine <laughs> just made me laugh hysterically. And I really got to know firsthand that axiom of that laughter is the best medicine. And here you are using your intelligence to provide laughter and relief, I would even say. Yeah. So many other things. And I'm just thinking about 
how much of your brain is active in doing this? I would say you're using everything you've got. Yeah, uh, you know, points, histories, reading the room. So I watch people come into the room. I'll stand in the back. Or if the club is a split level club, I'll stand up in the balcony and I'll watch people file it. And there's just something where I can go, you know what? I want to talk to him. What tells you that? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's some divine intervention or whatever. Uh, there's just an intuitive hit. Like I got to talk, talk to that guy. guy. I got to talk to that lady and I got to say something to that or here and there. And I remember, I'll give you an example. This is Tommy T's in Pleasanton. Okay. And there was this group of like five Indian kids, young. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to talk to those guys because it's a very predominantly white audience. Here's like five pieces of pudding and a bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> And I'm like, you know what? I got to figure out why they're there. And they were all learning to be pilots, which is hilarious. Because I think this was 2011. And then I, I go, what are you guys studying to do? And they're like, we're commercial airline pilots. And the room got quiet. And I just remember calling out the audience collectively. I'm like, and now you're scared. Everybody had seven <laughs> other jokes. Everybody had 7-Eleven jokes in their head or IT jokes because we're in the Bay or whatever. And now these guys are all commercial airline pilots and I haven't seen this many worried white people in my life. <laughs> so I remember talking to them after the show and I invited them back to the next show that night. Yeah. And it was just kind of a game that I would play and they were really good about it. But I would like, you know what, if anybody in the room can guess what these guys do for a living, I'll buy you a rock drinks. And everybody would say 7-Eleven, IT, engineer, doctor. And I go, nope, commercial airline pilots. And those guys, they live in Mumbai. They were here studying and they are still my friends till this day. I've met all of their families. Every time I'm in Mumbai, we go to dinner. We spend afternoons and evenings together. They're my closest friends. I was just invited to one who's now a pilot for Emirates. I just got invited to his wedding. It was a couple months back, but couldn't go because of the whole COVID situation that's still going on. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I got all the pictures sent and I'm friends with their mothers and fathers. And so all these things happen. So when I want to talk to somebody or even if it's not even a show, like, you know, talking to you, I'm like, I feel like I've known you forever. And we just got in touch with each other just a couple of days ago. Immediate besties. Yeah. And so like, I think that's the gift that I get when I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to that guy. And I want to talk to that guy. And I want to talk to that guy. Is sometimes I'll find out a backstory where one girl came up to me, I was doing a show in Pune, which, you know, for flowers outside of Mumbai. And this girl came up to me and she was crying at the end of the show. And she hugged me and she's like, I really needed that. I was in hospital a couple of weeks ago and had some bad news. And luckily, looks like things are going to get better, but I'm still going through some things. She wouldn't tell me what it was, but she's literally holding on to me. It's like coming to this show and laughing really took my mind off that for a second. So never saw her again. Hope she's doing well. But then there's people that I meet and we become best. So I was just watching the Dallas Cowboys game with my buddy Saul and his now fiance Narita. And I met them at a show. A girl I dated for a couple of years, we met at a show. And so I'll have all these really nice connections that I get. And I think that's the universe rewarding me for trying to make the whole room a little happier for a few minutes. For sure. You know, I heard Jerry Seinfeld describe how much joy he knows that he's brought the world. And I know that to be true. I'm even holding my space pen, which is the yeah. <laughs> from this show. Well, you're talking about like intelligence when I like I read and I watch, there's just this thirst. It's like if, I had diabetes and knowledge with sugar. I just, you know what I mean? Like I got to dude. So I have to keep learning. And that's why sometimes I'll do a reference on stage and I'll fall flat because yeah, I'll get the reference. It's and I'm arcane. like, oh, I just saw that on history channel. Sorry about that. <laughs> move on. But yeah, it's always been a fascination to me to learn. I had my mother was validated like in India from 
grade one all the way through 12th grade and then college and whatever, they have valedictorian. So you can be in the first grade and be the valedictorian of first grade. From first grade to 12th grade was valedictorian. Then she was a valedictorian of her college. Then she was valedictorian of her nursing school. And then when she went to London for nursing school, she was valedictorian there. When she moved to Ski, Texas, she went to SMU where she was a valedictorian there. And so there was always books and there was always... And my dad, on the flip side of it, is a huge movie boss and loved Bollywood movies and old Westerns, old action movies like Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, like all these guys. So I'd watch that and I had have that, and I have the entertainment side of things. And then I would have my mother on this side, who's wildly funny, but in a very intelligent and sometimes just a very dirty way. She was around a bunch of nurses, so they have the dirtiest jokes. Oh, for sure. And I just had that mix of that, just that combination of the two that I got to sit and study from, like I'm watching professors give lectures. Raj, in addition to the backstory of having been bullied and having adapted to that environment with humor, I would think that a big part of your success in this realm has been your multiple reference points through just your curiosity, inquiring knowledge in general, having various reference points, including being Indian in a milieu in which you are pretty much usually one of the only guys who is. Are you coming at me from Mesquite, Texas at the moment? Addison, Texas, which is about, Mesquite would be about 15 miles in a complete universal way because it's grown, but it's still a very small town mindset mentality. But yeah. But you're still in the, quite in the minority. So I think that oh, yeah, yeah. things kind of come together and yeah. kind of coalesce in a manner that allows you to be primed to create new material. Last week, when you and I first spoke, you said you were going to, you were working on two hours I can't even yeah. imagine trying to work on two. I told you offline that I tried three minutes. It's <laughs> funny for three minutes on stage and I got yeah. full on crickets. It was so funny in my head, but intentionally funny. But I would yeah. think having multiple reference points as yeah. you do, both for your prepared work and your extemporaneous work, yeah. that having these reference points really helps you in having more tools in your toolbox. Absolutely. Well, you don't know you're a minority until you're told you are. So... <sighs> That's why I'm saying like I was made aware of that very early on. And this is a joke about this on stage. Obviously, there's people that have issues with it and God love them for it and hold them. I always say bullies make the world go round because hmm. if it wasn't for the bullies that I had, I always do this reference where if there was no Lex Luthor, there would be no need for Superman. There wasn't the Joker, Batman would be useless. So you hmm. have to have adversity. And these guys were my adversity because they would bully me and tell me how I was different and tell me how I was this and how I was that. And then I could go back into my home that was very culturally different than what I was dealing with at school and see the difference. So I could see my household from my own side, which was, this is normal. And yes, we pray at a full moon and we do this and we do that. And you take your shoes off at the door and... Mm -hmm. But then I could see it from my friend's side and go, well, that's weird. So now I can write the weirdness of what you see from a kid who lived it. So I think that's where the charm comes from. It's like, oh my God, I was thinking, I hear this all the time. You know what? I had friends that were Indian. They did the same thing. I know because my parents did that. And I saw it from your eyes and I could see how that's weird. Like my dad would put up, and I've seen people do this as well. But to ward off evil spirits, he would, outside the front door, on a black string, he would put chili peppers and lemon and hang it up. 
And I guess it's because ghosts can't handle spice. Like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and he just thought that was normal. And Judy, who was across the street, my best friend, Sonny's mom, just thought that was the weirdest thing. But yet when Judy put up her bird feeder in a tree, my dad thought that was hilarious because birds can find food anywhere. And he just thought that was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever seen. And I'm like, well, that's hilarious because that's normal to her. And normal to you is putting up limes and chilies. Yeah. It's like basically standing with one foot in each culture and seeing both sides of it and going, okay, well, let me tell you why he does that. And let me tell you why he thought your bird feeder was hilarious. And so that all comes together. And it's a different perspective that I don't think a lot of people have. And then that starts conversation in the crowd. And so that leads to crowd work and me talking to people and like, oh, did you have somebody that, did you put up a bird feeder? And why do you think birds have a hard time finding food? And bird bats are just such a first world thing. You don't go anywhere else. Totally. You were just in Africa. I promise you there's like little puddles in water. (laughs) Birds will gather around, but nobody's got a bird bat. (laughs) Yeah, it's the byproduct of extreme wealth to be able to say, I I have such a surplus of food that I can feed birds. I can feed birds now. I don't have to worry about the poor kids. I can can feed the ones that fly for food. (laughs) As you're speaking, I'm thinking about cognitive rigidity as a sign of psychological non-well-being versus Mm -hmm. cognitive flexibility. And I'm thinking about the ambidexterity of you being Mm -hmm. able to see the world through so many vantage points. Yes. What a strength, what it may be one of the greater strengths. And of course, it lends itself to comedy, which lends me to ask, because you've performed on stages literally all over the globe, 49 states in the US or 48, actually, to be more accurate. Yeah. yeah. And you've performed in Scotland, United Arab Emirates, you've performed in India. What's it like to play to a vastly different culture or to a different audience from another country? What's that? You know, laughter is universal. I see it when I've toured with other people or have been places where they bring in support acts and they're from the States and we're over in Germany or we're in Ireland or wherever. And they're trying to be as German as possible. You know what I mean? In the sense that, well, I'm going to give you references about you. I did this a long time ago. It was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. It was an older black lady at this show. It was a predominantly black audience. A lot of comics are like, black people like this. And Indian people like this and black people are like this and Indian people are like this. And it went okay. It didn't go great. And I was early on in my career. So I'm just trying to figure it out and navigate through. And this older black lady, she was probably in her seventies. And she goes, we know about us. Why don't you tell us about you? And it was like that old black lady wisdom. The best. Just washed over me. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Because I'm just telling you things you already know. And expecting you to laugh now at yourself, because that seems counterproductive to what I want to do, which is make everybody laugh collectively at whatever situation we're talking about, not at yourself or at your culture. Because if you watch anything that I do in stand-up, I'll never make fun of being Indian. I always pride myself on being Indian. I never make fun of anybody. The only thing I do is I'll talk about my dad or my mom. And people have given me shit before where they're like, well, why do you have to do the accent? Well, they speak with an accent. I'm not just giving them one for the sake of giving them one. But everybody's got a goofy uncle and everybody's got a family situation and everybody's got something that everybody can relate to. And, and I know I have a goofy uncle. So when I'm performing, I remember I was in London. Everybody was doing this very monologue set where they were all pretending to be like some Tonight Show audition or whatever. Right. It's like, 
Yeah, so I was in the high street and I saw Amy Winehouse and my God, it was a high street. <laughs> and I'm just like, what are you doing? I just remember walking up. I just remember walking up and I go, my mom used to beat the shit out of me. Anybody else? <laughs> Place going bananas. And I was like, yeah, that's relatable because everybody got a spanking or everybody got, there was always a disciplinary in the family. And I asked like, who was a disciplinarian? Who was this? And who was that? Like I'll ask because everybody has one. Everybody's got a situation that they were in where that, there was, regardless of if it was a wooden spoon or if it was timeouts or if it was you were grounded, everybody's dealt with that situation universally. Dude, I got to weigh in because Joe Coy was just talking about this phenomenon. A note he received is that he shouldn't do his mother with an accent. She's like, that's how she speaks. And you wouldn't say that to Jeff Foxworthy who speaks with an accent. But right. here's the other thing. As I see it, comedians are actually ambassadors towards cross-cultural communication. Think about Margaret Cho and yeah. her mom. Think about Joe Coy and his mom. Think about you and your parents yeah. and any other comedian who is showing that we are all human in a way that conveys levity and relatability, as you just said. I believe that if we wanted the United Nations to really to come together, we would yeah. probably want to bring in some mirth. We'd want to bring in some comedians yeah. who actually were able to say, hey, listen, I know that we're kind of on different sides here. Let's unite. I mean, to borrow from Fluffy. I mean, he yeah. says unity through laughter. Yeah. And I think that's, that was actually how Fluffy made me a fan. When I saw yeah. that it said unity through laughter, I was like, oh, hell yes. This is the motto. I do a different version of it where I look at the audience. I'm like, this looks cord ordered. We all look like none of you would be in this room unless there was a show going on. Or exactly. Or unless a judge told you to. Because this Dude. looks like you guys don't get along at work and somewhere that your boss was like, okay, we're going to have to do a team building exercise. So let's all go out and laugh now. And that gets Dude, a nice big brilliant. laugh. Yeah, it gets a nice laugh because I'm like, look at everybody in the room. And given any other circumstance outside of entertainment, so be it a concert or a book reading or whatever, you wouldn't be in this room. All right, bro. So you got to hook me up with this one. Has there been a time where you thought, oh my gosh, there is a chasm between me and this audience or between something cultural where in which you, through laughter, were able to close the divide and unite? Yeah, I think there's been a couple of times that people, when they don't know something, and I learned this early on, racism and hate, and even if you're trying to do it in a funny way, it just comes from ignorance. Mm, for sure. So, you know, I've had people like yell out 7-Eleven. No, and my no. favorite thing is, well, well, that makes that just makes my family wealthy. That's dumb. I don't know why you throw that up. And then somebody, you know, and kids in school would be like, what's up, Gandhi? I'm like, really? The founder of peaceful resistance? Like, that's supposed to be an insult? <laughs> like, I'm going to take that as you just call yeah, me. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, Martin Luther King. <laughs> I'm like, okay, weird. But when people shout that out, I was like, well, let's break down why do you think that? Because immigrants will come to this country. Now, let's take out Indian. Let's take out whatever. Immigrants will come to this country and they will take the jobs that you don't want because you don't understand the circumstances that they're coming from. So the graveyard shift is given that name because back in the day, it was the most dangerous time frame to work in because it was a high time to get robbed. It was a high time to get killed. It was a high time for things to go wrong when you were working that hour. Well, immigrants are coming from where that shit happens during the day. So there's no graveyard shift. Every shift is a shift. So they're going to come over here. They're going to take whatever shift they can get, whatever job they can get. I remember my aunts coming here, very devout Hindus and working at a burger joint where they're having to make hamburgers. Oh my goodness. But that's Which what they did. Something that's holy for them. Yes. And that's what they had to do 
and my uncle's going off to put food on their table, which was obviously yeah. not burger. Right. <laughs> exactly. Mm-mm. And then my uncle's working, you know, whatever jobs they could get. One was a cook at an Indian restaurant. One was in what they call quality control, which is just a shit job, which means you're just staring at products going by on the conveyor belt and whatever you see that doesn't look right. You just kind of put it in that basket and it's very mundane and it's very menial, but they were getting paid. So they'll take any gig. And so what happens is then they'll take that money and they'll try to buy your shop. There was a guy who came from India in the late sixties that started working at a Dunkin' Donuts and then he bought and everybody hired was Indian and he gave them the opportunity because he would buy another one and go, okay, if you work really hard, you can buy this one from me and I'm going to go run that. And then he ended up buying so many and then selling them to those Indian employees that came from India and would get there at 4 a.m. to start. It's time to make the donuts. Remember that? More kids, time to make the donuts. I don't. Uh, it was a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. It was a white okay. guy. Okay, I was bag. in the West Coast. We didn't really have Dunkin' yeah. out here. Yeah, you had Winchell's. We had Winchell's. Uh, yeah, it was Dunkin' Donuts. It's like, guy, white dude, time to make the donuts. And in my head as a kid, I'm like, well, white people don't make the donuts. It's my people that make the donuts. For sure. So they're there at 4 a.m. to whatever time the Dunkin' Donuts closed. And they're saving that money. And some of that money's going back home. Some of that money's going here. When they're first to get here, like my aunts and my uncles, all of them lived in a one-bedroom, maybe two-bedroom apartment. And that's how they saved their money. And that's why there's still a joint family system. Because joint family system makes more sense when you're coming to a different country. Because you all live in the same place. All the money's coming into the same house. And there's one rent, one electricity bill, and one water and gas bill. So we can all split that four, five, six ways. And that way we can save our money and we can buy that first car and we can buy this and we can buy that. So I've seen when people yell out 7-Eleven, I'm like, you don't understand what it took that person to actually get to own. They didn't come here with a million dollars liquid in the bank so they could buy a 7-Eleven because if they had a million dollars liquid in the bank in India, if they had a million dollars liquid in the bank in Poland, in Hungary, in Slovenia, like they wouldn't come here because they could live like kings there. They work their butts off to get yeah, so 11. Once they realize that, and that sometimes will get an applause, but it'll get people to think, sorry, I yelled that out. I'm like, cool. You yell that out. Just don't yell it out again. But dude, how do you make that funny? Man, it's a chore. You just kind of have to figure out the levity of that situation. We're like, okay, you don't understand. Like, do you want to work this job? Do you want to do this? And like, what do you do for a living? And then we just go back and forth. And again, no malice, but I'm trying to educate you and make you laugh at the same time. And so, Sometimes it's not a great belly laugh, but it's getting enough of a laugh to where you're still laughing and you're still getting an education. That's brilliant. I really do believe that comedians are, on average, the most intelligent people on the planet. I really do. I, it's you not know, me pandering to my audience right now. I, although, my but, mother would disagree with you. I'm not a doctor. So, <laughs> but, but I, I'm going to substantiate uh, it, bro. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You were directing traffic as a kid. The yeah. amount of traffic you have to direct in your mind to formulate <laughs> yeah. a joke from so many different places and to yeah. make it land viscerally. That's hard. We were talking offline about what it takes to become a physician. It's great. I'm not diminishing that. No, no, no. The, the amount of work that goes. Uh, it's incredible the amount of sacrifice. Yeah. But you can't learn funny in this way. You can't teach funny yeah. in this way. Yeah. I was and, telling you, like, when I say my a buddy of mine is one of those, we're talking about doctors. And yeah. I have a buddy of mine that's very keen to tell you he's a doctor, whether you ask him or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, I don't introduce myself as, hi, comedian Rush. I don't, like, I, don't <laughs> I don't do that. I didn't go through 20 years of comedy school just for you to call me Rush. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm comedian Rush. Yeah. I always joke with him. I'm like, because all I have to do is study really hard and I can do it. You do it. 
I may not be the best at, I may not graduate first in my class, but I, I mean, I can study hard enough. Yep. I go, but you can't. And I've met doctors and lawyers that are aces in their field. They're like, I don't know how you get up there and do that. I'm like, I don't know how you touch a human brain and not totally freak out. I don't know how you hold a heart in your hand. I wouldn't be able to put it back in because I'm like, I'm keeping this. This is amazing. Everything's <laughs> like, like, you're a stud and you're an ace. You do. Oh, for sure. But the number one fear in the world, which blows my mind, and it's right, the number one fear is public speaking. For sure. Death is number two. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld had a joke about it that you'd yeah. rather be the one in the coffin than the person eulogizing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's like, I'd rather try my chances on stage. <laughs> uh, dude, and thank God you do. And I'm just so grateful for the comedians. I'm thinking about my addictions and thankfully I'm not addicted to substances, but except for food, perhaps. But oh, yeah. two of them would have to be information just like you. I love, love yeah. learning new stuff and the dopamine hit. But the other one would for sure be comedy. There's nothing that pleases my ears more than listening yeah. to you do your stuff. Which is yeah. very weird because I don't listen to comedy. Like, I, I don't listen. So I don't listen about that for a minute. Because I ingest so much and I learn and I am curious. And if I want information, I'll seek it. But with comedy, I don't want it to ever be a situation where it's like, oh, well, so-and-so did that joke. Like you lifted that from so-and-so. I really don't watch a lot of people. There's a handful of people that I will watch that I'm a fan. I could probably count them on one, maybe two hands, probably one that I'll watch. But I don't want to be accused of, oh, that was so-and-so's joke. I mean, you did it kind of different, but you know, that was so-and-so's that, and that was so-and-so's that. My buddy Andrew Santino, his special, which I didn't watch, I had to watch it because of this, because he's talking about the playgrounds growing up when we were kids. And I have to think about our playgrounds where I'm like, whose idea was the metal slide? Just logically, that makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like, let's put metal out in the sun. Right. And then have and, kids right, short shorts. Yeah. And have kids in short shorts slide down it because what could go wrong? And then make it dry at the bottom. So when uh, they get to the bottom, they just launch off. And what's going to stop? Gravel. Hmm. Like, and now these kids have plastic and everything sleek and it's well designed. And I don't know if you know this, there's no merry-go-rounds anymore. Those are gone because kids get hurt too much. And then the swing has to be adult supervised. I don't know if you know this. No, I did not know that. Yeah. So it has to be an adult supervised situation. You can't have your kids swing on the swing without an adult present. I agree with that because we were assassins as kids because we would just push and kids were like, higher. And you're like, you got it. Higher, higher. Okay. <laughs> what do I do next? I'm like, jump. We were just giving bad ideas to kids. Of course we needed an adult present. But then somebody was like, hey, you know, Santino's kind of got a bit about the playground and the metal slide where it talks about a rusty nail sticking out. I'm like, yeah, but I don't talk about that. But then I want to, I'm like, oh, I could see how that would. Okay. So I'll just take that out. That could be misconstrued, I see. It could be. And I just don't want that to happen. And it's only been like maybe one or two times where somebody's like, hey, you know, somebody's got to do it. It's not the same, but it's a little similar. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just rather not do it. So I'd rather not watch because there are comedians out there that watch other comedians and that's how they get their material. And, I've and they, have no, they have no compunctions about filching. No, no, no. I mean, I've had it stolen from me multiple uh -huh. times. I was, uh, my favorite one, we didn't talk about this one. I was going to bring it up in this interview. We didn't talk about it offline. I was in India and I was like the surprise guest in New Delhi for this uh -huh. show. I'm sitting in the back with my girlfriend at the time and this guy's doing a bit and I'm kind of mumbling the bit to myself. And she leans over, she's like, do you know the bit? I was like, yeah, I just don't know whose bit it is. And I keep mumbling it, I keep mumbling it and he hits the punchline and I remember I stand up and it was just from here and I stood up and I went- Wait, wait from where? I so it was like, like from my soul. 
I just stood up. I was like, uh, that's my joke. Dude. And he came up to me afterwards like, I was doing tribute to you. I was like, you were doing a tribute to me? I was like, two things. Number one, I'm not dead. <laughs> so let's not give me a tribute till that happens. Number two, you didn't know I was going to be here. I was the surprise guest. They didn't tell anybody about. And so I got to witness somebody with my own stuff, which was kind of, wow. it was kind of an attaboy. It was like, hey, they're stealing your stuff 19,000 miles away. Good job, buddy. <laughs> so it was part pride, part maybe a little disgust as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, I've had it lifted. I've had it lifted from comics that are very successful and very famous. And and few have been very nonchalant about how, yeah, it's a great bit. Yeah, I know that you wrote it. And I'm like, oh, okay. That was interesting. Just to my face. I'm like, wow, that's balls. All right. Yeah, I felt a bitter taste in my mouth, even as you were saying that. Just like, yeah. Oh. So, but it happens a lot. There's no intellectual property for us. If you're in a band, you can always trademark mm -hmm. the band name and then you can go to ASCAP and go, here's our lyrics and here's the music. And that becomes that. And you go, okay, well now if somebody else does my stuff, they'll have to pay us a royalty and they have to do this. And God rest his soul. And I'm not trampling on anybody's grave. He was just a brilliant human being. But there's many a story and you can read about this with the comedy store, but like Robin Williams, who's this great, phenomenal actor, Oscar winner and great comedian. And I think early on in his career with the substances and alcohol and drugs, he wouldn't know because he was stream of consciousness. And there's a great story where he manager talks about it, where comics would line up and he'd have a checkbook. And because Robin would go on The Tonight Show, he was one of the Carson's favorites and do a bit and it would be somebody from the comedy stores. Mm. And that's where the running adage came from is the first to TV wins. Whoever gets the joke on TV first, that's their joke. So that's where that comes from. And I'm not trampling on anybody's grave and I'm not saying anything bad about the human. I would have loved to have worked with him. I would have loved to have been in the same room with that man. And I've had friends that are comics that have had the experience of sharing the same space with that human being. And that would have been mesmerizing. For sure. But there is that thing where it's like he wasn't in the right state of mind. And so he didn't know what he was saying and it came out and it was so and so. So I don't want to be up there with a Jameson Neat and then say something and then somebody go, man, that was Steve's bit. Sure. I'm like, well, no, yeah, Steve and I worked together last week. So, oh man, maybe I did. So I'd rather just stay away from that completely. And that's why I have, and also my the stuff that I write, like nobody else can write because it's not their story. Like when I talk about writing two different hours, one's called the holiday wait. It's holiday period wait, like hold on, because we didn't celebrate the same holidays. So right. when people here would talk about like, oh, put on a couple of pounds during the holidays. I'm like, we have no excuse. <laughs> we don't have Thanksgiving and we don't have Christmas. So there's no hams or turkeys. We're just putting on weight. And I remember as a kid, like this Christmas and they didn't know how to celebrate it. And everybody's getting presents. And my dad took me to Toys R Us. And I was like, so Santa Claus is like, no, he called. And I said, to take you to Toys R Us. And I'm like, called? But he went to everybody else's house. Yeah, busy guy. <laughs> and I'm like, he was too busy to stop at our house. You know, we're new in the neighborhood. So, you know, we're new here. So he probably doesn't know that's us in the house. And I'm kidding. I'm like, half of me went, oh, okay. That makes sense. Solid. Why? And then the other half went, oh, he's not real. Oh, let's go into Toys R Us and I'll buy my stuff. No, so I remember seeing my dad. He had a, a maroon Buick and we're walking into Toys R Us. He's wearing a white plaid pearl snap because he loved Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. But he would never wear jeans because that was for hippies. Tucked into his gray slacks and a shorts and a tank top. And we're walking to Toys R Us and that's when he tells me the story. I remember it like it was yesterday. 
And he's like, yeah, he called and said he was too busy to come by. But next year, now that he knows where we live, I'm like, but everybody around us, Santa Claus came to. And that's when it dawned on me as a kid. And I'm like, okay, I can. And then I'm going to start talking about that. And then there's life of the party where I'm talking about like all the different parties we would go to. And like the only reason we would invite white kids to, because as a first generation kid with immigrant parents, kind of embarrassed. This is a real talk. You're embarrassed of your parents. So you don't want people to come over because it's different food, different culture, different this. My, my dad had an accent that kids couldn't understand. Their parents couldn't understand it. They didn't eat the same thing. My parents were vegetarians, didn't believe in guns in Texas. So that wow. didn't fly. So it's like the only reason that I would invite white kids over is because they knew all the words to happy birthday. And my parents didn't because that song does not exist in India. So they would just keep singing happy birthday to you forever. There was no, happy no birthday, birthday no middle or end. It was just, there was nothing. Just keep a happy I'm, birthday to you. Happy, but, and I just kept going and you blew out the candles and everybody would cheer. They didn't know what they were cheering for. They're like, Hey, you're alive another year because we kept you alive another year. I don't know why we're celebrating this with sweets, but all right. <laughs> they weren't really keen on it. And there's a great picture that I'm using for the other cover. It's me smiling. I'm just so excited. And everybody around me is literally miserable. All the kids are just like, <laughs> and then if you look at the cake, it's Jiminy Cricket. And he's just got like his little umbrella yeah. and he's like tipping his hat. The juxtaposition of everybody in the room just being so miserable. And my cake is the only thing outside of me that's happy. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> like the only person, the only thing outside of me that is the cake is like, happy. great to be here. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, hey, thanks for purchasing me. Uh, and everybody else is like, when can we leave? Because wow. we're not sticking around for the chicken curry and white rice. My mom was going to make you fried chicken or hot dogs or that didn't happen. But she would make some bomb red beans and rice, some I red bet. bean curry, some potatoes and peas and roti. But that was what was coming out. That's, and so everybody would bounce. <laughs> well, as I told you, I'm all about that. So I would have been stoked. Yeah, but nobody was all about that in 1981 uh, in Mesquite, Texas. That's right. Like, that's right. Nobody was about that in any way, sure. shape or form. <laughs> I've got to ask just a massive pivot right now. So we were speaking a little bit, just given your, I'm actually going to call you a fellow healer because I believe you fully are. And I'm going to ask oh, you thank my you. magical question. And that is, yes. if you could confer upon all humanity, one trait, skill, or insight, what would it be? And what do you imagine the impact would be on the individuals in addition to perhaps society at large? I think we were talking about this offline. So when I did the Justination show, if you watch the trailer for it, for every episode, real quick thing, but there's this giant gold Buddha mm. that they show. At uh, 18, 19,000 feet? Yeah. Well, that was 14,900. Okay. That was in the city of Ladakh. And I got to meet this monk and that's his monastery. And he's the guy that lives there. He's the guy that does the stuff. He's the monk. And he was in his late 90s. He was like 95, 96, but he looked like he was in his... Late 60s. Mm, amazing. And he referred to us as the people down there because he's on a mountain. <laughs> and he wasn't like demeaning or anything. For sure. I said, what's the key to life? And he kind of chuckled at me like, oh, like, what an idiot. Like, how do you not already know? And I was like, what's the key to life? He's like, are you serious? And I was like, 100%. He's like, you don't know. I said, no. What is it? He goes, it's really easy. Practicing is, is the hardest part. But knowing the answer is extremely easy. I said, okay, what is it? He goes, compassion. I was like, that's it. He goes, what else do you need? He's like, if you're compassionate to someone who, let's say, is intolerant of you, at some point they'll stop because you're exhibiting so much compassion towards them. There's no other recourse than to show you some compassion. 
whether they apologize for their behavior or they ask to learn more or whatever it is, they'll show you compassion. And now you hope that you go on to the next person and do it. And then so do they. And so if we can just keep doing that, at the end of the day, we all live happily because everybody's compassionate towards each other. You won't find any racism. You won't find any hatred. He goes, that's human nature to do that. And jealousy is human nature and all that thing. But if you can kill it with compassion, so teach that, teach people to be compassionate. You have been a great teacher and oh my God. so grateful okay. to you. I know you're not intending to be, and I know that must be <laughs> a little funny, but truly I've been loving learning about you, from you, hanging with you. Oh. You're just the coolest guy. People just Google the crap out of this guy. He <laughs> comes to your town, make it your business to see him live. Raj, you are phenomenal. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.